Early Risers is supported by Health Partners and Park Nicollet. From rashes, fevers, shots, and all other things that make you worry a lot, Health Partners has pediatric care for your kids. Visit healthpartners.com slash schedule. From Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio, this is Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. I'm your host, Diane Halsey. This podcast is about how to talk with very young children about race and racism and how to celebrate cultural differences. This season, we're focusing on the stories of parents across the state of Minnesota. Over the last few months, I've been talking with people about their parenting journeys and how they're navigating conversations about race and racism with the young children in their lives. When my son questions me about, like, color and race and differences, as a mother, like, I question myself. The question that every parent has, right? Am I doing a good job, right? (laughs) Is this going to work? Is this working? The first thing I feel like I have to be honest about when asked, how do I talk to my kids about race, is that I don't know how. In this episode, we're going to hear from Ellen Gettler. She and her husband are the white parents of two boys who are now six and nine years old, and they live in Minneapolis. Ellen grew up attending integrated public schools in St. Paul. This was in the 1990s when the O.J. Simpson trial and Rodney King case were making national headlines. Ellen remembers feeling tensions around race and racism back then, but none of the adults in her life talked to her about those issues. Over the last few years, Ellen has been practicing anti-racist parenting in community with other white parents. We talked about some of the questions and discoveries she's encountered on that journey. When was the first time your parents, or maybe it was another adult, that actually talked to you about race? How old were you when that happened? And what was that experience like for you? That is such a good question to start with, because I feel like the way that I talk to my kids about race is very rooted in how I did or really didn't talk about race growing up. I don't know how to talk to my kids about race because I didn't talk about race growing up. I grew up in a lot of whiteness. My family and my community we were white progressives. And so the feeling about racism is that racism is very, very bad in our white progressive you know, value system. But um, we never talked about race. And I was part of the colorblind generation. So race was unmentionable. It was thought that if you didn't talk about it and pretended not to see it, then it wouldn't harm anybody. Mm. And so I didn't grow up building skills around talking about racism. I don't remember my parents, you know, sitting down and having really explicit conversations with me. The way that I learned about race, I felt like was fairly intellectualized. Like it was learning about historic events, the civil rights movement. And I certainly didn't learn about whiteness. There was nobody around me who was speaking aloud that whiteness existed. I didn't have any consciousness around there being white norms, 
white values, you know, skills that we often sort of learn within whiteness. And so my consciousness around race came from being in integrated schools, Mm. um, starting in middle school, and then especially with very strong experiences at St. Paul Central, which just has a whole history as a school that is in a formerly redlined neighborhood in the Rondo community, you know, is part of a community that has Black excellence alongside the sort of systemic oppression that has been overlaid in that neighborhood. And so I was with students who were living those experiences and bringing those experiences into space with all of us in school, but they were not talked about by the adults. There wasn't a lot of scaffolding or support from the adults around us because I don't think they had the skills to sort of guide, you know, a white student like me who felt a little bewildered by it all. I could feel it all in my body. Like I could, (laughs) I could feel everything that was happening. Um, And my brain couldn't understand it. And I didn't have a lot of tools to understand it. And this was, I should say that I was in middle school and high school in the sort of post Rodney King, um, you know, OJ Simpson, like the sort of the nineties era where um, I don't know that everybody who went to my high school had that same embodied experience. If it was the time period, if it was just me as a person, I don't know, but I sure did. Yeah. So how did that experience or did it change how you now are raising your young children? Um, how do you talk to your children about race? The first thing I feel like I have to be honest about when asked, how do I talk to my kids about race is that I don't know how. I don't think that we collectively as white people have done the work for a long enough time, both internally, in community and with our kids to feel like we have a strong grasp on how. And so I think it's important to just say that because for a long time, when I started to try to talk to my kids about race, I felt like there was an answer or like a way I should be doing it. And I just needed to find it or I just needed to do it right. Or maybe I was doing it wrong. And it has felt like learning for me to just understand that we are learning together how to do this. And in some senses, I feel like my kids are my greatest teachers because I'm learning alongside them. I mean, I really am. That doesn't mean that I don't work really hard to get my own supports around it. But I think it's just a reality that this is a new collective experience for white parents. Yeah. And I would also say that the fact that my consciousness around race and around whiteness and my whiteness is really rooted in my school experiences, I think has really had an impact on how this works with my kids. For example, after my high school experience, I so did not know what to do with that tension that I was experiencing that I rather unconsciously, but really retreated into whiteness. Mm-hmm. And I would say in in many ways that whiteness worked quite well for me, like in work and in, you know, where I was choosing to live. And, and that's not a pretty thing to say, but it's true. Um, it wasn't until I had kids that the dissonance, the kind of oppressiveness of whiteness and white culture started to sort of bubble up in me. It's that's when whiteness started to feel impossible um, was through parenting. Uh, why do you think that is? Why do I think that is? Um Here are some things I experience really strongly within whiteness, anxiety, competition, not enoughness. There's one right answer. I'm doing it wrong. Perfectionism and loneliness and isolation. My experience of whiteness is that it really patterns us away from community 
And Mm -hmm. so when I found myself becoming a parent, you know, those were all skills that worked really well for me in the workplace, I will say. Like those are all, you know, the perfectionism, the anxiety, the, yeah, that, yeah. Mm-hmm. you yeah. know, it really led me to being a high performer. Like, right. <laughs> like everyone was giving me all the rewards. Um, and it wasn't until having kids that those qualities started to not work because I couldn't get it right with my kids. I couldn't be perfect enough. I couldn't control them. I certainly couldn't make sense of the emotional dysregulation of it all, you know, like I just, you know, the, like the meltdowns, the like, oh my God, you're expressing anger. Like, oh my God, you know, um, <laughs> like parenting is what broke me open and broke me into healing of not just racial oppression that we all live with in our country, but all of the systems of oppression that we sort of enact on ourselves and on one another. And I think it was because I was just working my butt off to kind of, quote unquote, do it right, feeling a deeper and deeper sense of not enough, and then simultaneously experiencing deeper and deeper isolation. And it got stronger and stronger. And I just sort of felt like this cannot be what this is about. I do not think that something as human as reproducing, <laughs> but is this what this is? <laughs> you know, I think I just yeah. had this question. And then perhaps it's not surprising given where I first was exposed to, you know, these deep systems of oppression, specifically around race, but not just race, was, you know, in integrated schools that when my oldest started school and our district of Minneapolis started to propose some changes that was in part about integrating schools, several white parents in the school community around us reacted in a way that I recognized word for word as what parents of my friends in my school experiences had said that were very racialized ways of talking about schools. So don't ask us as white people to integrate schools because you're trying to take something away from us. Those schools are bad. Those kids are dangerous. Those kids can't learn. Their families don't value learning. And the intensity of this being like a generation later I mean, it just started to crack me open. And mm-hmm. um, and that was really the beginning of our journey. And I would say that like being a parent and being a parent in a school community has been the biggest catalyst for my learning and growth around awareness around racism. That is fascinating. So what are some of the questions that your boys ask you? about race or do they do they even ask you questions about it we did not talk about race when they were very little we didn't know how to we weren't in community where parents were having conversations about you know how do we do this and so it probably started you know maybe three-ish years ago and we've had all kinds of conversations over time there have been all kinds of questions what I will say about like how we experience that right now is that we and our family made a very conscious decision to enroll our kids in a school where we're one of just a handful of white families in the school. This was a very intentional decision that we made. The majority of students in our kids' school are African-American. And so as a result of being in a school where they have a lot of Black friends and are in classrooms with um, majority students of color, that is probably the primary vehicle for like what questions come up. It's really around lived experience and questions about classmates. Right. And that is 
intentional for us. It's the same way that my husband and I have sought out our growth around, you know, anti-racism and, you know, what I have now, what I'm now sort of considering like healing and liberation Mm -hmm, (laughs) um, mm -hmm. is to find ways that we can do it in relationship. We have read a lot of books in our house. My kids often resist reading the books. And that might be because, you know, also until recently, a lot of the way that I talk to my kids about race has been really intellectualized because that's the skill that I carry. You know, that is how I grew up with an intellectualized understanding of race. And I think for a lot of white people, racism is something we understand with our brain, but we live out with our bodies. And I think collectively, it's a very new experience for us as white people to understand how racism and other systems of oppression live in our bodies and to develop a set of skills around listening to the signals we get in our bodies and understanding how those signals are like the scaffolding that kind of keeps the patterns of racism in place. Uh, Well, first of all, I love this idea of learning through relationship because, you know, we're all on a journey with, with all of this. Can you give us an example of like, some of the questions your children might ask about their friends? Yeah, I have one really powerful story. Um, So my kids transferred to this school that they're in now. And early in the school year, my older son came home and asked about racism against white people. And this is something that they have come back to a few times and that I've really been messy with. And I have to kind of laugh at myself because I first go to an intellectualized, I'll be like, well, you first need to, we, we need to have an understanding of power, you know, <laughs> sort of like just, and they're like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> but I'm feeling like this is unfair. You know, I understand racism through this lens of unfairness, you know, and that's so visceral and something kids can really latch onto. Yeah. But this was a moment, um, I think it might've been one of the first times that one of my kids came home and he said, is there such a thing as racism against white people? And I will say that the first thing that I thought to do, and this is a result of a lot of work and a lot of skill building that I've tried to do in community with other parents, is that I noticed that I suddenly had some reactivity. And so I thought to just slow down and I sort of took a breath and I said, well, tell me more. Why are you asking about that? And he said, well, somebody at school today said something. I won't say what it is um, to sort of preserve the anonymity of the student, but somebody at school said something today and it was a mean thing about all white people. And what I noticed in that moment is that my body was reacting. I had an instant story in my head about this student who I don't know, I've never met and haven't even heard the context of this conversation. And so I just said, you know, tell me more about that. So after he said that, how did that make you feel? And he said, I felt kind of, I felt sad and I didn't really understand why he was saying that. And I said, okay, so then what happened? And my son said, then he looked at me and realized that I was there. And he said, oh, no offense (laughs) to me. And I said, okay. And then what happened? And he said, and then he came over and he gave me a really big hug, which I think is his way of saying, I'm sorry. And I said, so then how did you feel afterwards? And he said, 
then I felt okay because I felt like he was still my friend. And in the moment, I think, because when my kids ask me these questions, I sort of have this sense, like I have about eight seconds to respond. Yeah. <laughs> Before they're off to something else and they've forgotten about it all again. Exactly. <laughs> Yes. And I will say, like, you know, talk about like, I don't know how to talk about race. Like, I often have squandered those eight seconds because I will say something like, well, we need to talk about power. <laughs> and they're like, and I'm done. <laughs> and so a real practice that I have is that I always go back to conversations. I yes. practice compassion with myself to sort of know that like the question is the signal to me that they're working on something or that they've noticed something. Absolutely. And so I've often really botched the eight seconds afterwards. But the other piece of what this work is for us is that I think we, my husband and I have developed a kind of um, a series of communities where we can go and talk about these issues. And so I have one small community of three other parents in particular where there's a really, really deep connection and trust and relationship of vulnerability. And the community is built around anti-racism. That is why we came together. And so I took this moment to my community and I was just like, oh my gosh, do you all like, I totally messed this up. I, you know, I don't know what to say like this. I have to, I have to make sure he knows that, you know, racism can't exist against white people. And it's about, part, you know, right. I sort of started at this place and in processing with them, a new understanding emerged about the moment. And what came forward to me was that, yes, something was said. Yes, my son had feelings about it. Yes, there were certainly feelings happening within the boy who said them. And what I see happening in this moment is that one child says something and then looks to his friend, who in this case is my son, looks to his friend and says, oh, but I like you. And not only goes in for repair and connection, but the way that he does that repair and connection is with a hug, like a physical co-regulation. And that what my son leaves that experience with is, yes, some questions about the very like fractured and harmful experiences that we are all living in our country around race, because that's real. And he has an experience through a relationship where he does repair, he does connection, he does co-regulation. And those experiences have been humanized for him by this connection with his friend. And that I feel like is the piece that has felt really important to us to almost heal our own intellectualization of race, but to be entering through relationship because the harm and the confusion of racism are real. We can't ignore it. We can't pretend it's not as bad as it is. And the only way that we grow and heal through it, I think, is through relationship and that opportunity to, if we don't understand as white people, to learn, but also learn in a way that is connecting to other humans. You know, one of the reasons why I even wanted to start this podcast is because of my struggle in talking to adults about race. I can think of lots of adults that could not have the conversation that your eight-year-old son had with his friend. Right. And so for him, you know, as he's growing and developing, he's already gathering some language around this, which is great. I mean, this, this is what we want. We want him and, and his friend and all his friends to grow up, to be able to have conversations about race. 
and racism because you can't solve a problem if you can't even talk about it. Yeah. And I like the way that you go back and do you yourself as a parent are going back and doing repair. Because, you know, those eight seconds, parents, we mess those up all the time because you were caught off guard or we're, our mind is on something else. And then you ask this question out of the blue and you're like, oh, you know, I got to switch gears here for a second, you know, and it takes you a minute. So, you know, being able to go back and do a repair and come back and say, hey, remember when you asked this question? And then lean into it a little bit, you know, better once you've had a minute to think about it is always a good practice. Um, And I just wondered, too, like before he was even finished telling you that story, you had already, you know, conjured up some images in your mind about what was really going on. Uh, And I just wonder if part of that wasn't because of maybe some of the experiences you had had as you were going through your experience in middle school and high school you know, it's being in a very integrated environment. Mm, that's good. I think that is spot on. Yeah. I just didn't experience a skill set around me in being able to sort of help me make sense of that. And though I had the experience of being in an integrated school and value that now tremendously as an adult, I think because there wasn't a way to to speak aloud and help me integrate what what I was a part of and what was happening around me. I left the experience with some internalized racist and racialized understandings of the world. And that is something that feels very real for me as a parent who is choosing to send in in many ways when it comes to like what my kids do in the summer, what where our kids go to school, um you know, what community we seek out in each part of our lives, I think very consciously about how integrated is this space? How white is this space? We really intentionally try to build multiracial community for our family and for our kids. And one of the things that I talk about with other anti-racist parents is that that doesn't work by just sort of showing up and not maybe doing the work behind it, especially as parents. Because if we show up and we don't really do the work behind it, both to sort of, you know, be humble and intentional and thoughtful about how we are showing up, but also to develop some skills around disruption where it's needed. And then to be able to notice and speak aloud the oppressive things that are happening. Because if we don't, then I think as white people, and I notice this with my white children, the advantage that our society wants to confer upon them follows them wherever they go. They are often viewed with, you know, benevolence just right off the bat. I can kind of see that even when they're in integrated spaces and multiracial community, I can see those patterns happening. And so if we don't find a way to talk about them and name them and ultimately work to disrupt them, they just keep happening. And I do kind of feel like that's a little bit what happened in my experience. It kind of ha- kept happening. I didn't know how to understand it. Um, and I sort of internalized it. Like, this is just the way it should be. This is just like the way, it, this is the way things go. This is the way things happen. Yeah. And it wasn't until I had those stronger moments of dissonance and really being broken open that it started to become clear, like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> 
Well, you certainly have a powerful story, Ellen, and I really thank you for spending some time with me today to talk about it and, and to be on Early Risers. This is some, some really rich conversation. Thank you so much for being in conversation with me. Early Risers is hosted by me, Diane Halsey. Our executive producer is Andrea Bork. Our senior producer is Nancy Rosenbaum. Our producer is Twyla Dane. Sound mixing by Alex Simpson. Katie Giselle is our social media manager. Kaviesh Kavaraj composed our theme song, I Still Remember. As always, a special thanks to the whole team at Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio. Thank you for listening.